The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, March 28th, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Yesterday, we covered leggings. Today, we get into what leggings cover. Legs. I got them. You got them. I mean, you probably got them. I can't know for sure. I can't see you. But I'm going to guess you got them. You know who else has them? The leaders of Scotland and the UK. The two women, Theresa May and Nicola Sturgeon, met and a photographer snapped a photo of them in a chair negotiating. And there, emanating from the ground up, were their legs. Headlines! Uh, Never mind Brexit, who won Legsit is the headline. Never mind Brexit, who won Legsit. This led to controversy. In fact, not just controversy. There's a huge amount of controversy about, about this. Other female leaders have gone beyond criticizing the troglodytic tendencies of the Daily Mail. And by the way, that's Daily Mail, M-A-I-L, but you could be forgiven for thinking otherwise. Amelia Womack, the deputy leader of the Green Party, accused the Daily Mail of breaking the editor's code by treating women with contempt And she put this complaint into the Independent Press Standards Organization, or IPSO, which is a good name for a news regulator because it pairs with facto, doesn't it? So in her submission to IPSO, Mrs. Womack accused the mail of breaking Clause 12. I'll read it. Editors must, quote, avoid prejudicial or pejorative reference to an individual's race, color, religion, gender, sexual orientation, or any physical or mental illness or disability. Well... Does that qualify? I mean, women have legs, but a lot of people have legs. Most people, I would go as far as to say. And I do think a fine or admonishment from some external news referee, I don't know, it just goes against my First Amendment-loving DNA. Though the Daily Mail is certainly retrograde and a juvenile publication, in America, we would never stand for such a thing. See, in America, our newspapers conduct themselves with decorum, and they are generally falling in circulation. Our down-market outlets that obsess on female appearance and that highlight their legs and trade on a smarmy mix of sexism and fear, they're called Fox News. And Fox News has been the most watched news channel for 15 years straight. So get Ainsley, Shannon, and Ebony some leggings and then ground them. On the show today, a trip back in time for the spiel, Ebenezer Whore will be mentioned. And a vexillology corner will convene, but first, another look back to the last big political party that has been pooped or popped. The Whigs. I love me some Whigs. The Whigs were a political party, a precursor to the Republicans. They elected two presidents, Zachary Taylor and William Henry Harrison. They both died in office. They served a cumulative one year, five months. But Abraham Lincoln was a Whig. Henry Clay was a Whig. Daniel Webster was a Whig. They had a lot of great ideas like the National Bank and more infrastructure. They were probably more right on the big issues than their opposition party, the Democrats. But they died out. Why? Well, they were elitist. But also, the why brings us to today and the failure of the health care bill. Historians are drawing parallels between today's Republicans and the Whigs of yore. Extrapolate from that what you will. Philip Wallach is a senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution. He's written a report called Prospects for Partisan Realignment, Lessons from the Demise of the Whigs. 
What America's last major party crack up in the 1850s tells us about the 2010s. Hello, Philip. Hi, good to be with you. Before we get to the resonances with today, let's talk about who the Whigs were, and I'll pick a point in history. What was their apex, would you say? You know, the Whigs formed around opposition to Andrew Jackson in the 1830s, uh, just as political parties were sort of taking something like the shape with which we're familiar, where they sort of become mass turnout operations. They were the party of protective tariffs. They were the party of government involvement in the economy back then, participation for the federal government in building out railroads and rivers and harbors improvements. And on slavery? So slavery was managed to sort of be kept outside of the conflict between Democrats and Whigs during that period. There was, they were both bisectional parties, meaning they both had northern and southern branches, and there was sort of an unspoken and, and frequently tested agreement to keep slavery out of it. There were other things going on that, you know, had similarities to today, but also differences. And I found compelling that you looked at a bunch of the issues that were driving politics. And they, uh, if the old phrase is that history rhymes, they sort of rhyme with the issues today. So can you go through a few of them? Sure. So first is a set of issues that had been good things, keeping Democrats on one side and Whigs on the other that sort of stopped performing that function. So the tariff was was a big one. That was sort of Whig's main issue. But then Democrats reconciled themselves to a, a middling tariff, and it lost some political salience. Infrastructure, both parties ended up supporting uh, subsidization of railroads and, and rivers and harbors and improvements and that sort of stuff. And sort of opposition to Andrew Jackson, which had been such a unifying thing for the Whigs in the first place. Well, Andrew Jackson fell off the political scene, and so that stopped being uh, something that held them together. So all of those things stopped holding the Whigs together, and meanwhile, some factors rose up that really pulled them apart. Slavery, we talked about, was by far the most important one, but interestingly, there was also prohibition came onto the national scene at, at this time. Maine passed state prohibition of alcohol, and that really divided Whigs between dries and wets. And then you had nativism, which emerged with a force in the late 1840s. U.S. at that time had a, a comparable level of foreign-born population to what we have now, something like 12 percent or something. And so-called Native Americans found lots of things about that trend troubling that had lots of anti-Catholic overtones, as most of the immigrants at that time were either Irish Catholic or German Catholic. De Democrats tried to warm to those immigrants. Whigs tried to hold the, the sort of nativist elements within their coalition, but they had a hard time doing that, and that caused them a lot of internal tensions as well. Let's talk about nativism for a second. So that reminds us of an issue that's going on today, nativism or anti-immigration. Um, but what were the differences between then and now? There wasn't so much emphasis on cutting off immigration it was on regulating the lifestyles of immigrants. So part of the prohibition actually intersected with this, that this, the sense is that these immigrants needed the, the social tutelage of their betters. There, there was a similar law and order element. Immigrants were portrayed as especially menacing to the native-born population. Politicians certainly did a, a good amount of posturing on what they would do to keep the native-born safe. It had a lot of similarities. 
Okay, so let's bring it up to today. Before the election, it seemed when uh, when Donald Trump was uh, trailing in most polls and most betting models, there was all this uh, talk about how not only Trump would lose, he could imperil uh, Republican majorities in the Senate, maybe even the House, and that could be the realigning of the Republicans. He could wreck the party, and that's why people were talking about the Whigs because it looks like it looked like Republicans had a strong chance of really losing. And so you look back, all right, what was the last big party that really lost? But then the Republicans won. They've they're really strong just in terms of numbers. We're still writing that, ah, but they could go away because the Whigs went away. How is it both true that if they lost, they would be like the Whigs, a party that disintegrated, but now that they won, oh yeah, they're still like the Whigs, a party that disintegrated? Well, nobody's disintegrating yet. That's, that's yeah. for sure. Um, but I, I, I have always, since before the election, been saying that I thought the Republicans had a much bigger problem in keeping their coalition together if Trump won. And the, the logic goes like this. If Hillary Clinton were president today, there would be one huge overriding thing unifying all Republicans, and that was opposition to Hillary Clinton and the continued Democratic high-handed government in the White House. That really would make a lot of other differences between Republicans sort of pale in comparison. With Donald Trump winning, he clearly represents a very different vision of what the party ought to be about than what it has been over the last decade or so. He represents a real challenge. Like Zachary Taylor, who, who came in and won in 1848, he's an outsider. He doesn't have much affection for the old party insiders. He seems eager to pick fights with them. That certainly still seems true today. He's leading a populist movement as opposed to a conservative one. That's certainly very different for the Republican coalition. So he really sort of brings to the fore a lot of these potential cross-cutting issues around the theme of, of populism and anti-establishment. And Republicans are, are forced to deal with those issues in trying to hold their coalition together, whereas I feel like if Hillary Clinton were president, they, they could have pushed a lot of them under the table. That's true. Do you think the Republicans are more, there are factions within the Republicans from the Tea Partiers to the John Boehner's Main Street Republicans, but there are factions within the Democratic Party, you know, the Bernie faction, the Hillary faction. Why, why do you think the Republican Party has uh, more cutting factions? To my eyes, it looks like the Republican base has m more things pulling them apart more strongly. And Trump himself having the potential to become this super divisive figure is something that I think Democrats don't have to deal with. But you're right. I mean, Democrats are in rough shape in many ways. When you look across the whole political map, they're at a very weak point today. As these cross-cutting issues come in, they create challenges for both parties at the same time, it creates the kind of environment where you could have a reshuffling, a reconfiguration where some new party could offer a different structure for the conflict of American politics. It's if the emphasis is on the divisions, the ideological divisions, the policy choices that they can't agree on. You know, the parties today are much more clearly ideologically sorted. There are some divisions, but you have this, you know, clear ideological break absence of third parties, I suppose, plays into that. But might it be that issues don't matter as much today, that there's this team identification thing, not just against Hillary or Obama, but red team versus blue team in a way that Whig team versus Democrat team didn't exist? Well, if the, maybe that's right, but maybe that's not. You know, we, we do have a very strong voting polarization in Congress, right? That's just an established empirical fact. But whether that actually tracks 
a very meaningful divide over the issues or whether it just means that the leadership is very good at whipping their members to vote in certain ways isn't so clear. Philip A. Wallach has written for the Brookings Institution Prospects for Partisan Realignment, Lessons from the Demise of the Whigs. Thank you. My pleasure. Don't worry, just listeners. Our interest in flags has not decreased, subsided. What's the verb I'm looking for? Oh, yeah, it's flag. We are joined once again, belatedly, I should say, by Ted Kay. Ted is the author of Good Flag, Bad Flag. He is the uh, editor emeritus of The Raven, which is, of course, the scholarly journal of the North American Vexillological Association, of which he was an officer. Hello, Ted. How are you? It's great to be with you. Thanks. Breaking flag news. Let's go to Romania or maybe Chad, where they have uh, the same tricolor. They do. Romania's flag and Chad's flag are virtually the same. A blue, yellow, red vertical tricolor. And Chad's came first, uh, surprisingly, perhaps, if you know about the foundation of both countries. Why'd Romania decide to go with that? Well, it depends on how you count. Romania's came first. They adopted it in 1869. It had been around since 1848. But in 1948, when communism took over, they put more stuff on their flag. So they went from having a plain blue, yellow, red flag to a flag with some more stuff in the center of it. Eleven years later, Chad came along and got independence and adopted what it thought was a new flag that hadn't been taken. Blue, yellow, red, plain colored flag. Well, that was fine until communism fell in Romania, and in the 1990s, Romania went back to the blue, yellow, red, plain-colored flag, but in the meantime, Chad had taken it, and so now they both have the same flag. Yeah, and Francois Mitterrand tried to mediate the dispute, which is the good use of a diplomat, I would say. Indeed. A favorite theme in Europe after the fall of communism or challenging communism on flags was to take the central communist symbols off of the flag by actually tearing them out. So we saw that in Hungary in 1956, in Romania, in other countries where they would tear it out and leave a big hole in the center of the flag. And Mitterrand proposed that Romania just keep that hole in the center of its flag as a symbol of taking communism out. Yeah. So as a flag expert, as the author of Good Flag, Bad Flag, would you care to weigh in in the dispute? And I will I will just say this so our listeners could get a visual picture. That flag under communism was this very nice blue, yellow, and red tricolor, but in the middle was this emblem. And the emblem included some letters, a rising sun, a mountain, some trees, some wheat, and what looked like an oil derrick. And one of your huge principles is don't get too busy or have a flag design that a child could not emulate. So did Romania kind of ruin itself by going this route? Uh, Romania made a less successful flag from a design standpoint by putting lots of stuff in the center of the flag. And in fact, that's one of the reasons why it's gone back to a more simple design. It's a much more effective flag this way. But by going back to the design, now they're copying what Chad has. Are there any rules of thumb when flags, when countries share the same flag, who should uh, lay claim to it? It's happened before. In 1936, 
the country of Haiti came to the Olympics in Berlin and found that Liechtenstein, the principality of Liechtenstein, had adopted a similar, well, an, a, a, the same flag and uh, lodged sort of a protest saying, hey, you, you've copied our flag. And Liechtenstein uh, bowed to pressure saying, oh, look, you did have it first. We'll put a crown on our flag to distinguish it from Haiti's. There is no overall group that weighs in on who gets to have what flag. The United Nations basically says, countries, you choose your own flags, and if you've got one that's similar or the same as another country, you, you two work it out. Chad and Romania have to deal with this. And the Liechtenstein-Haiti flag, it's, uh, it's blue on top of a red that's uh, edging into the maroon. But a lot of times, you're right, the crown is on Liechtenstein, but a lot of times on the Haitian flag, they have a huge old symbol in the middle of theirs. I don't know if that's the... with a lo- with, They have flags on a flag. They have a flag with a symbol featuring a palm tree and other flags. That's correct. So flags on flags. Actually, if you think about flags on flags, though there are many flags that have another flag on them, all of the colonial British flags that have the British Union Jack in the upper left-hand corner is a flag on a flag. And we see that on the state of Hawaii, which has a British Union Jack on it. Yes. And, and if you want to talk about countries that have the same flags, Poland and Indonesia are really similar because, and we have a little mnemonic in my family to figure them out, if it's red on top of white, Indonesia's right, but if it's white on top of red, it's Poland instead. But one of those flags, with the Indonesia flag, is exactly the flag of Monaco. Although, again, I need you to weigh in. I think Monaco says that the dimensions of their flag is a little more square than rectangular. That's, is... that's correct. The proportions <laughs> are different between Indonesia and Monaco, but both of them are a horizontal bar of red over white. Yeah, and so I is that... I mean, the dimensions of a flag, and, and except if they're Nepal which the, with the triangles, I mean, you can't rely on anyone to duplicate your flag with appropriate dimensions. Half the time it's printed on a pillowcase or a jacket or something. No, I, I agree. Uh, saying my flag is different from yours because <laughs> the dimensions are different, even though the colors and the stripes are the same, is a, a fallacious argument because most flag manufacturers don't pay attention to those dimensions anyway. They make them in standard sizes, so the flags will match when they're flying on the poles, and it's just easier for their manufacturing purposes. All right. Ted Kay is the editor emeritus of The Raven, and he's the author of Good Flag, Bad Flag. Although it's not a shaming exercise. It's trying to pull all flags up by their bootstraps. Thank you, Ted. Okay. Thanks, Mike. And now the spiel. President Donald Trump always promised his health care bill would be something historic. In a way, he was right. The Washington Examiner, Philip Klein, writes, or the headline to his piece is, GOP cave on Obamacare repeal is the biggest broken promise in political history. And you saw, I think it's Phil Klein in the, in the Washington Examiner said, this is the biggest broken promise that anybody's made in American political history. Both face the nation and meet the press there, drawn in by the bold assertion from the Washington Examiner. Whether the charge is true or not, the point is made. But you know what? I don't like the whether or not the charge is true. 
I don't like it when it emanates from Trump. And I think it's only fair to question whether charges are true when applied to Trump. So was it? Is this true? Was the failure of Trump care, Ryan care, you know, Trump cross, Ryan shield, the biggest broken campaign promise ever? I do not believe it was. Now, for most of presidential history, candidates felt it unseemly to campaign per se. Therefore, the string of presidents who preceded Lincoln didn't really break any promises regarding slavery, but it was probably assumed that they'd address the issue with some competence, and they didn't, though shout out to James K. Polk. But in the 1916 election, Woodrow Wilson did campaign, and the slogan that carried him into office, though not said by him, though about him, was, he kept us out of war. And then, once elected, he brought us into war. World War I. So, broken promise. Though Wilson might argue that circumstances changed once he got elected and going to war was a good decision. Good point, Wilson. Of course, you had 14 good points. They didn't go anywhere either, did they? Next, Herbert Hoover promised a chicken in every pot and a car in every garage. Cue the depression. The state of the nation's pot is chickenless. And in 1940, FDR made this promise, apparently, again and again. I have said this before, but I shall say it again and again and again. Your boys are not going to be sent into any foreign war. And then they were. Now, FDR could argue that a little thing by the name of Pearl Harbor intervened, perhaps even making it no longer a foreign war. I wonder if 1942 PolitiFact would give him Pinocchios for that one. Others will point to Nixon's secret plan to end Vietnam. You know, there's never really a secret plan. He mentioned something like that once in a meeting with newspaper editors. It took on a life of its own. George H.W. Bush did the whole read my lips, no new taxes thing. That's true. But those promises were different from Trump's in that what Trump really promised was not a proposal or a plan or a structure. It was an outcome and it wasn't really a tangible or realistic outcome. It was more a feeling. You're going to think your health care is terrific. There are a few elements to that, like all the good things will stay and all the bad things will go. But it wasn't exactly saying, I will pursue this policy, just that I'll make this bad situation better. I, I mean, look, maybe chickens in every pot, maybe that counts as an outcome too. The dominant anti-government caucus of the day, the feather caucus, would certainly say it was. We say Trump's promise, or at least Phil Klein in The Examiner says Trump's promise is the biggest broken promise largely because we lack historical perspective. Same thing was true on a different issue. This Sunday, Senator Chuck Schumer was on This Week talking about the need for confirming Supreme Court nominees with at least 60 votes. Well, 60 votes should be the standard. Why? Because for something as important as the Supreme Court, George, um, 60 votes make sense. You get bipartisan support. You avoid judges far right or, or far left. And each of the four last judges... Two by President Bush, uh, Alito and Roberts, two by President Obama, uh, Kagan and Sotomayor, met that 60-vote standard. Now, Schumer didn't say, to be fair to him, he didn't say, this is how it's always been. But he was arguing for a new norm, and he took the somewhat arbitrary start point of the Alito nomination. By the way, fact check, Alito only got 58 votes. Republicans would start counting with Bork, because that's when they would say Democrats changed the rules by taking into account a judge's conservatism. That's hogwash. Tosh, I say. Nixon had two judges rejected, essentially because they were overly sympathetic to states' rights and segregation. And if you go back in history, judges sometimes just sneak by 
And other times they were rejected outright. Take the presidency of Grover Cleveland, Wheeler Peckham, rejected, William Hornblower, cue sad trombones, and ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I give you the case of Ulysses S. Grant, Supreme Court nominee, Ebenezer Hoare. Hoare! Ebenezer Rockwood Hoare. Hoare was put out. Hoare was rejected. Ebenezer Hoare, brother of George Frisbee Hoare. Out a golden retriever was a Frisbee Hoare. George Frisbee Hoare was elected a U.S. Senator in 1877, not in time to help his brother Hoare's nomination. I've seen Ebenezer Hoare, very learned. By most accounts, he was a good public servant. He was wise. He looked Solomonic. He was one bearded whore. So I say this all by way of pointing out that we get history wrong so often, and we think the present is more unprecedented than it is. That said, there is another reason why Donald Trump may well break the record for broken promises. It's because he promises so much and so bluntly and so unrealistically, as with today's signing ceremony. I made them this promise. We will put our miners back to work. That'll win the headline, but in three years, 10 months, if he's still in office and an assessment of coal mining jobs is made, it'll be hard to believe that the numbers won't say what the state of the industry is strongly suggesting, that coal mining jobs will shrink. And while what you heard there might not go down as the biggest broken presidential vow ever, whatever is number one, two, and three on down the line till we get to the coal miners, they will all have been promised by Trump. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Mary Wilson's flag displays the arms of George Calvert, the first lord of Baltimore, alternating yellow and black from the family shield. Chris Berube is a Gist producer. You know him from the red field with a white square at its center and a ratio of 1 to 2 to 1, in the middle of which is a stylized red 11-pointed maple leaf. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts, but he has been tempted by some other offers. Get together, we'll go to another place, and you'll get another job. Andy Bowers is chief content officer of the Panoply Network, which he says he loves to do, lucky for him. I said, if that's what you want to do, that's what you're going to do. The GIST proudly unveiling our anti-pirate initiative. All over the world, they ship in, ship in, take the Americans' money, take the money, go home, take our jobs, take our companies. No longer, folks, no longer. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.